society feels more divided than ever right now. And that worries me. It saddens me. Um, and I would love to try and work on products and solutions that can bring back a greater sense of community. Welcome to Hyper Curious, a show that is all about finding happiness by embracing changes and following our curiosity. My name is Beta Luca, and each week I unveil the most intriguing aha moments and leaps of learnings of successful leaders, founders, authors, and artists, and how they achieve incredible things by staying hyper curious. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome the tech entrepreneur, angel investor, and business advisor, Jess Butcher. She was CMO and co-founder of Blipper, the pioneers of augmented reality that raised over $130 million in funding. Jess was recently appointed as one of the four Equality and Human Rights Commissioners in the UK. She loves speaking and writing on subjects such as gender diversity, work-life balance, and polarization within our culture and society. In this episode, we discuss about the dilemma that all entrepreneurs have to balance our drive for business impact versus personal matters. Why we women should stop apologizing ourselves for our decisions. And the need of nuanced conversations in our highly polarized world. Yes, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. We've known each other for almost 10 years now. And I remember when we went into a mission from the UK to Silicon Valley to visit companies like Google and Facebook. And we were just starting out our own companies. And the mission was all to kind of to learn how they built the tech giant, right? And since then, I've been always observing your career trajectory with huge curiosity. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you go from uh, studying ancient history at Oxford University to raising $100 million for your startup and then building a beautiful portfolio career? Love to, love to. And the mutual appreciation is strong because ever since we met, I've always been following you and you and I have come together as sort of kindred spirits around a lot of our shared motivations and sort of generalist attributes. Uh, so thank you so much, firstly. I'm really enjoying being on, on the show. I always describe my career progression as kind of a bit accidental and a bit of a scrapbook because the simple truth is even now, having just gone the wrong side of 40 and with three young children, I still don't know what I want to be when I grew up. Um, and I didn't at 21. So, you know, when I graduated university with an ancient history degree, I didn't do the milk round. I didn't really think about what I did know is I didn't want to go into the corporate world. You know, nothing about that world appealed to me. So I never did the application rounds of the big companies I've always been drawn towards kind of scrappy, hungry, disruptive ideas um, and people that are pioneering within their respective industries. Um, and my career throughout my 20s saw me basically riding the coattails of people like that. So I fell into business almost accidentally. I, I did a very abortive sort of one month long dot com at the age of 21 when every, you kept reading about all these paper millionaires everywhere. 
And I thought, oh, I'll try that. How hard can it be to uh, to get millions of people to come to your site? Turns out it's very hard. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But what that experience did at the age of 20 was it kind of whet my appetite for this new thing, the internet. And it really does show my age when I refer to it like that. I really got excited about its potential as a new medium, all the ways in which the world could change. And I think I've always been quite a good predictor of the future. You know, I am able to have that longer term view on the power and the potential of things. So I went to an internet consultancy for a couple of years, which was like a management consultancy. So it gave me a bit of that sort of business training and background And after that experience, uh, I moved through a succession of startup tech businesses throughout my 20s. And they were across lots of different industry types. So I worked within the sort of loyalty and marketing industry for a while. I worked within research and recruitment. I worked within film distribution. I worked within the travel industry. And then what I refer to as my last real job was working for Alibaba when they were launching into Europe, Middle East and Africa. And at the time, it took me a long time to make sense of this CV because I was quite embarrassed about it. You know, to me, it just said, doesn't know what she wants to do, you know, loses attention easily, can't be managed. And But I did realize that there was an underlying theme to all of those moves, the entrepreneurs that I'd been attracted to. And the power and the potential of these businesses that were trying to change mindsets and attitudes and behaviors within their respective industries. Uh, And what I've always loved is taking those sorts of products to market. So being the front end spokesperson for selling, for partnerships, for communications, for marketing. You know, I'm not a techie. And unlike you, I can't even write a line of code. I don't really understand it. Where I've always sat is translation of that kind of technical power and potential into behavior. And that's what's always really got me excited. So it wasn't until my early 30s that I guess the stars aligned for me as an entrepreneur. And this network that I'd built up through all of this ridiculously scrappy CV and job hopping throughout my 20s became a superpower because not only did my co-founders come from that network. I'd worked with them at a previous business. But also, you know, I had this brilliant network of people across the UK, across Europe and America, to whom I could start to pitch our new business. And that business was Blipper. We were the pioneering technology company in the field of augmented reality. I would have had no idea about had not I been shown a demo and thought, oh my God, I can see so much potential for this. This is storytelling in its most interactive, vibrant, experiential way. We need to be talking to brands and media owners. We need to bring billboards Mm -hmm. alight. We need to make cereal boxes dance with educational content for children over their breakfasts. You know, that was where I kicked in and all my sort of creative marketing and comm side kicked in to work very, very nicely with the brilliance of the product team that I'd partnered with. And that was our blipper journey. That's super interesting because you you talked about the, the thread of looking at the future and disruptive businesses and etc. When you realized that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you faced this, you know, Lego style, all these possibilities with this technology, what was the, the 
kind of the biggest motivator for you to, because you could have started any other companies, right? Any other technology company. Why augmented reality technology was the one that you, you were like, that is it. That's the one that I want to build in the next whatever years of my life. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, if I was being totally honest, it was opportunity. The fact that, you know, I was witness to the birth of that technology um, with these co-founders. I've heard people say, you know, it's not often that you get an opportunity to take a seat on a rocket. I could just tell, you know, as a potential user that this this had huge, huge potential. And then, you know, it's bleeding edge tech, but it's also a creative storytelling and communications tool. And I guess that's where the intersection of all of my interests came together. I didn't really care how the tech worked. I cared about how it could be used, how it could be creatively interpreted to really bring home messages that excited me. So, you know, then the historian in me came into play because I immediately thought about, I immediately thought about the power and potential to go back to Pompeii or ancient Rome and be able to look at ruins and to be able to visualize and overlay them with what they would have looked like back in the day. You know, I thought about, um, you know, the storybooks that I would read with my children and how they could be interactive and, and be played with. You know, I immediately went, as most people do, to their own consumer interests and preferences and got huge excited about that but I also had the network to then go out and and potentially talk to people within different industries whether it was ed tech or advertising tech marketing tech even corporate usages of the technology to start to trial and test those ideas so it was a combination of right time right place and the fact that this was a creative tech that lent itself more naturally to my personal interests and passions that I guess was the great mm -hmm. sort of completion of, uh, of catalysts to us doing that. And for the people who are starting now, right, and they are considering jumping to something that connects to their passions, how do they find the co-founders? How did you find them, your co-founders who were building the technology that allowed the stars to align at the right moment? How, how did you go about finding them? It's, it's such a good question. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges for people that want to start a business and are aware of their strengths, but also critically the gaps in their knowledge and the weaknesses within their knowledge. The Blipper partnership was very opportunistic. We had all worked together in some capacity in previous lives. And as a rule, I would say that that is a fantastic model. You know, if you can do that, you know their patterns, you know what their bad days look like, you know what their good days look like, and you've got a strong sense of their skills and their attitudes and their, their working values, because it's very, very hard to know that. And I have, for example, seen many founding teams come together around just a, a shared passion for a problem, which I think is a great place to start but it doesn't help you with all of those intangibles and your working relationship. So when you see potentially, you know, siblings coming together or friends that have been at university together, you know, you can have all the passion in the world about a particular problem, but you really need to understand your, your skill sets and whether they work and also very critically your working styles because you can't force these things. And I think it's definitely one of the question marks I have around some of the pre-idea 
accelerator programs that have sprung up. There have been absolutely fabulous companies come out of them. But I have, I think there have been some quite high profile falling outs as well, because there's a sort of artificial yeah. collision of what looks good on paper, but like a marriage, you know, in some ways it, it gets put under more pressure than a marriage because the highs and the lows are so intense and you've got other people's jobs that you're responsible for, their mental health. And there's no sex. <laughs> Everything is chaos. It's just, you know, enjoy our lives right now with the glass of wine, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the interesting ones, actually, and I, I segue a bit here, but I have worked with a few married couples who have started businesses together. And mm -hmm. they typically do so very successfully. I think there's like the inevitable challenge of, you know, when you close the door on your working day, you know, does it all consume your, your home and your family life? But they do know each other's strengths and weaknesses better than anything. And, you know, if they can delineate between their personal and their and their professional lives, then it can be very it can be very successful. And I haven't ruled out the possibility of working with my husband, although he's a super nerdy chemist the pharmaceutical you know drug discovery <laughs> expert i can see no alignment of our uh, of our interest <laughs> at some point there might be something he's doing that needs uh detecting and you know kind of expanding to to the the wider world so you never know that's great i yeah one of my co-founders is my husband uh so yeah i relate to that there's a lot of things that we know about each other that makes everything better and worse sometimes right but you know that's uh, as long as you are you have your mind in the right place, you, you can make it work. So you were four years into Blipper and you decided to change a role uh, from an operational role as uh, chief marketing officer to non-executive director. What motivated you to do that and how did you feel about making this big, big decision? So a bit more context on that journey. So prior to getting to that, so 2011, we started the company and it was, you know, four co-founders. By 2015, the company had just gone crazy. So we had scaled to 10 offices around the world. We had 350 staff. We were the leading technology platform of its kind internationally. And it was a bit overwhelming, like all the plaudits were coming in because there were so few pure tech companies coming out of the UK and scaling at that pace. You know, we became a real sort of one to watch, which put a huge amount of pressure on the business, as you would expect. It came with a lot of yeah. sort of PR and, you know, great momentum and investor interest. But it also meant, you know, we could only fail. You know, we could only go down. You know, we really had to keep delivering on that trajectory. And in 2015, my personal circumstances had were and had changed very dramatically as well. So I had my first child in 2013 and went back almost immediately uh, and into, you know, four day working week for the next couple of years. But I was still doing a lot of international travel. So I was spending a lot of time in New York with our, our, our new office over there. Uh, and then I got pregnant again. And if I'm honest, there was an element of pull and push to my decision making at that time. There was a lot of personal evaluation and painful sort of over analysis with regards to the value that I was bringing to the business at that time. At the same time as I was really missing, you know, being present in, you know, my one and a half children's lives and just very tired, very stressed, you know, you know, could never switch off from the business challenges. You know, a company that is scaling has very different challenges from a startup company. And the ones that I struggled with the most were always personnel related. You know, when you're hiring at that sort of pace, 
you make mistakes, kind of have to correct those mistakes. You have a lot of unhappy people that were part of that early journey and don't feel as included as the business grows. And I would always take those challenges very, very personally. And I was losing a lot of sleep over worrying about the conversations that needed to happen the next day, questioning my own abilities as a manager. And I think I also struggled with the pace of that journey as well. I'm a very good generalist across the various functions under my remit when it came to kickstarting the business. You know, I can do a bit of marketing, a bit of communications, a bit of sales, business development. But I had also appreciated by that stage that there were better people than me to run each of those individual departments as an effective swim lane who were better managers than me. Now, that was painful Mm -hmm. to acknowledge, but I had to acknowledge it. And arguably, I should have done so sooner, if I'm honest. And and so it was at that point that I thought, well, you know, here's a great opportunity for me to hone in on what I do best, which is rainmaking in the broadest sense of the word. And let's get, you know, some really good uh, managers in to really be able to scale this business so that I can stop being the control freak that I've become over the minutiae. And I could start to look up and out at the medium to long term. So the first role that I transitioned into wasn't a traditional non-exec role. I did um, a couple of years as a sort of three-day-a-week role. I did do a lot of this sort of public speaking, networking, events, you know, uh, and opportunities to sort of grow the business in in a macro sense and sort of internal mentoring. And then I stepped into a more traditional non-exec role when I started getting interested in other projects and wanted to find more time for those personal projects. So it was painful, but it makes perfect sense now with hindsight. You know, the the generalists in me sought new challenges, you know, and I now have a much greater appreciation of kind of where my strengths are and, you know, the, the areas that I should be focusing on rather than forcing myself to do things that perhaps don't work to those strengths. Yeah, if you're a founder listening to us right now, I bet there's a lot of people who resonate with that because it requires such a great self-awareness and and generosity to be sharing this as well, what you just said. I think a lot of people, a lot of founders go through the pain. They just don't feel that it's right that they change their roles. And you were brave to say, okay, I there are those struggles and I want to do something else and I'm better at doing something else. So I, I think that's super brave and super beautiful. Just to add to that, though, I do continue to struggle with it. And I think we all should, because Mm. there's an element of letting yourself off the hook by saying, well, I'm not good at that. So I should just knuckle down on the stuff that I am good at. But then how do we learn? You know, so part of me thinks and and does someone say, should I have pushed harder to have got better in that one discipline rather than just Mm. saying, well, I'm a generalist, so I don't need to. And I think everybody has to draw you know, those conclusions in different ways and potentially at different times of their life as well. You know, it would have been perhaps, you know, I would have accrued more skill had I applied myself to going deeper within those fields and, you know, going through the pain process of trying to become a better manager rather than just saying, nope, I'm no good at this. You know, I'm not going to manage. But when you throw in the personal side of that as well, and the fact that, you know, I was feeling my priorities, if I'm honest, change with parenthood, that I thought, well, I'm not sure I'm up for that intensity of battle at this stage of my life, because, you know, I want to be more present, I want to be around, I want to 
appreciate the good things in life. One thing I didn't mention, which perhaps is pertinent, is during that period, we also went through a couple of bereavements um, in our family and and, and with a close friend of mine. Mm. That, I think, made me a lot less tolerant for the personal development at all costs, you know, path, because Mm. I really thought, what is important? What am I going to regret here? You know, I'm going to regret... I'll never get this time back. I want to hold on to it. I want to embrace it. I want to live it very consciously and vividly, you know, as a testament to, you know, what these people I've loved weren't able to do. And I think there was a a very conscious decision in my mind and in my heart, actually, which said at that stage, I'm not going to take my health you know, the happiness and health of my family, my fertility, you know, the fact that, you know, I had so many friends Mm -hmm. going through challenges like that. I'm not going to take this for granted and I'm going to be grateful and soak it up. So I guess all of these things came together around that same period to help make that decision a lot easier. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, uh, I, I'm going to go into a detour here because you're touching on something so important, which is this hustle porn, right? Which is this idea that every entrepreneur in the high growth business who raised millions of funds need to be working night and day, every single day. Otherwise, they're not good enough. They're not going to, they're not doing enough for their business to grow fast, right? And I, I'm not sure what, what is your your view on that, but I do, I do feel sometimes that there's this push Uh, from society that you have to go into hustle porn or you're not successful, right? And then it forgets about all of the elements of our lives because work is not just, you know, our lives is not just about work and our businesses, but there are so many other elements that makes us who we are. I totally agree. And it's one of the big, you know, psychological, philosophical questions. I think that everybody hits around this stage of life, I think as well. When you're young, you want to hustle because you've got something to prove to the world and you want to learn and you want to progress and you want new experiences. So it's not something that you spend a lot of time thinking about. And arguably, you only have yourself to worry about and mm. until you get older. I think now, you know, the more I read, the more I research, you get to an age where you start reading a lot of biographies and, and looking at, you know, how other people have viewed their life and the lenses through which they, they do that. They never talk about their working lives, you know, with nearly as much passion, pride, or indeed regret. You know, it's always around people and families and experiences that, you know, we look back at the the things that we're proudest of in our life. And then you look at the research that says over a certain amount of income, you know, the the happiness or the satisfaction that you feel with your life, it diminishes, you normalize to that. Once Mm. you remove the pain point of, you know, feeling, you know, like worried about money, there isn't a proportionate return to how much more you make above that. Um, I think the most successful entrepreneurs obviously aren't motivated by money per se, but by impact and the scale of the impact that they can have. And that typically correlates with, huge success and and huge wealth. And I wrestle with that as well. But I'm not sure how far I'm prepared to sacrifice everything else in my life for that high impact. And I continue to believe naively that I can do both. I can have impact (laughs) and talent. And I hope that with age and with wisdom and with perspective, I already know now that in order to scale, I need 
better people than me and I, I need to be able to pull together, you know, the right team with the right incentives to deliver scale. So it's not all on me. It's not on my 100-hour work week, my stress levels and my sleepless nights. It's shared across people that have um, a similar mission. So it's the great question of our age. Why do we do it? What's 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 the point? What's the point? <laughs> And what, what is the impact that I want to have now versus in the future, right? So there are so many, these are so many big questions. Yeah. You went into uh, this massive transition, a lot of self-knowledge and, you know, self-discovery there. And then you started other businesses. You helped other businesses as well as, as non-executive director. And most recently you became a commissioner for equality and human rights in the UK. Have you felt that people judged you in this route that you decided to take? I haven't felt, I've seen. So, you know, on this sort of transition that I went through, and it ultimately boiled down to what were my priorities in life, I started talking to a lot of people and observing a lot of the careers of some of the most impressive women that I knew. You know, I was fortunate enough to go to a top university, a great school, and, you know, a lot of female friends that have been you know, at the very pinnacle of, you know, their careers and in the, that top 1% throughout their, their lives to date whether that was in corporate law or in finance, you know, they went into a lot of male careers. They also, you know, went into what we would consider more female orientated careers. And then we all started having children. And I was just fascinated and staggered by how many of them made similar decisions to me. And indeed, you know, many actually chose to stop work altogether during this period of their life. And you know, these people were ex-McKinsey, you know, senior in strategy at eBay or, you know, a, a big banks and law firms. And I kind of, th I, I said, well, well, what's happening here? You know, are they going to go back? And I mean, if you look at the gender pay gap in their relationships, it was 100%, not, you know, mm. 9%. And I started talking to them. I was like, well, why are you doing this? And I thought, well, it's my right. It's my choice. You know, this is what I choose for my life. And I said, so that's a positive choice, right? You, are you doing this because you've been hounded out, you know, or that you feel disadvantaged because of, you know, the fact that you're the one that's born the child and whatever else. And, and in nearly every instance, it was like, no, this is the balance and the priority that I want to give to my life at this stage. And I was like, huh, interesting. No one ever talks about that. And this whole sort of question and you know, conversation that I went on really made me start to question some of the narrative around underrepresentation. You know, a lot of it is accurate, but I guess where I got to was that it's incredibly simplistic and binary how we talk about women in the workplace. And much of the broader narrative around feminism is very, very binary. So I just kind of started doing a lot of reading and questioning. And I still, by the way, have no conclusions. But I appear to have landed on some questions that very few people seem to be asking. I think they're valid, interesting questions. And some of them might shine quite a positive light on you know, women's options and choices that I think society is more receptive to women making than they perhaps are to men making. You know, But this mm. is all very unfashionable. And it is, it can be deemed and has been deemed dangerous in actual fact to belittling some of the challenges that women you know, really do face, which I absolutely acknowledge and I don't want to take away from, but I want to avoid conflation of, you know, 
everything being about something that is very simplistic because like all things in life there is just so much nuance so I did a TEDx on that and it's kind of it was quite a sort of sleepy TEDx as far as it didn't kind of take off overnight but I did about two years ago and I've nearly hit a million views on it now so it's one of these things that are just built and built and, and, and being shared and increasingly I became a magnet for people that wanted to ask these unfashionable questions but didn't feel like they could do so publicly and that started to intrigue me. You know, why are we not able to have these debates? Why are certain things out of bounds? Particularly when you accept that the people asking those questions are doing it from exactly the same intention. You know, my intention is to get more women into the fields that I have so loved, you know, get better representation and to understand why there isn't in the hope that I can, you know, help that movement. And the fact that people didn't want to ask these questions and they were nervous about doing so struck me as quite alarming to where we've come to in terms of many of these debates um, and narratives. You know, we've become very polarized. You know, we are right or we're wrong. And of course, no one is. No one is, me included. Yeah. You know, it's there are just questions and we can only ever hope to become less wrong by engaging politely, constructively and openly about the questions that we all have. And I guess I'm more tuned into that as an issue than I am or anything to do with feminism now. And I think that is where, when it was seen that I am happy to ask uncomfortable questions, the HRC, you know, wanted to bring more balance onto their board. They wanted to get more nuance, you know, because they're obviously being pulled left, right and centre by, you know, a lot of activists, you know, incredible organisations that are doing fantastic work. But how can we find the nuance within the detail of these incredibly, incredibly complicated issues? So this is a new thing for me. I'm very excited about it. And I have a lot to learn, put it that way. Yeah, so many interesting things, like in so many levels. Um, I'm going to pick a few of them. So one is, do you believe that we care too much about how we're being judged? And that could be affecting the way that we go about life. And from the, the other perspective, you you have a lot of women who are making their choices and they are like going about their lives and say, well, this is this is who I am and I'm going to embrace that. And, you know, I, I don't care about the, the way that you're judging me and the polarization of the world. Are there other forces? Because I know that on your TED, TEDx talk, you talk about the female victimhood, right? And how this whole narrative... Uh, I know that we're going to the, the TEDx talk now, but it's like, I think it's super important because I, I, I'm a fan of, of the talk. And I think there's something about the victimization of women through the judgment of society, while actually you argue that we should be doing the other way around to encourage confidence, which is something that all women suffer from. And we want to be encouraged to be more confident and resilient on our own choices? Yeah, it, it's a huge, huge question. And as I've just explained, the more I've researched and looked into a lot of these issues, the more confused I become. That is the way we all should be, actually. You know, if something seems simple, then you should question yourself immediately. I guess the way my thinking has evolved is there are true victims, victims of sexism, victim of uh, misogyny. This stuff absolutely, absolutely exists. But by 
almost overemphasizing victimhood, we assume it now when it might not be the case. And also, I think we take away from those people that have really suffered at the one end of the spectrum if we put everything else into, you know, the same bucket, particularly sort of what might be deemed sort of slightly minor transgressions or frankly, very sort of personal and individual uh, responses um, that actually have nothing to do with gender, but get assumed to be so because Mm. the narrative is, well, I'm a woman, so it can't be because of anything I did personally. It must be because I'm a woman. I started to observe this in younger entrepreneurs that I was mentoring and working with who would be going for funding or pitching or I'd be helping prepare them for a presentation or a pitch deck. And I started to see them responding to knockbacks and setbacks within their business with an assumption that it was because of their gender. And I thought, oh, this is actually a bit dangerous because I was in the main presentation. I saw the other companies pitching. They were brilliant. You know, it it actually wasn't anything to do with you. It was just the competition and what you're up against. And, you know, maybe the lesson here is not to assume, you know, that this was down to your gender, but perhaps to think about what you can learn from this experience and to, you know, look at improving your deck, thinking about your story or, you know, working on the gaps of, of what you might have. You know, so I suddenly thought, oh, this, is, this isn't doing them any favours, you know, and if we mm. assume that everything negative that happens to us in our lives is due to an identity. And I think the narrative encourages us to think like that because now we look for it everywhere we go. Now, I didn't. I can be quite a spiky person sometimes. And I've, in many of my professional realms, been the only woman in the room. And there's a high probability that I have been looked down on purely because of that fact or overlooked. You know, I've been the one that made the tea and, you know, had questions directed to to male colleagues rather than myself. And it's It intrigues me, but I'm never quick to say, is that because I'm a woman? I feel with everything that has has come around, I think, well, yes, probably I should have thought more of that was because I was a woman than than because I was. I'd be more sort of like, hang on, this is interesting. Why why is this going on? And then my reaction would always be, well, I'll show them. (laughs) You know, come on then, bring it on. If you think I'm the tea girl, let me uh, me pull this one out the bag. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always prided myself, perhaps big-headedly so, on looking at, at the individual and not as an identity first. And I assume other people do the same with me. And, and as I've said, I think there's probably some naivety to that. There may definitely have been sort of things that negative experience that have been as a result of my agenda, but I don't see any point in um, responding in any other way than as me as an individual. You know, I don't want to go running, telling on people or assuming something that I don't know to have been the case. And this is the problem. Everything around this is incredibly subjective and you cannot ever possibly know the motivations. And I think in most instances, negative personal relationships happen because of bad personal relationships or misunderstandings between individuals or misinterpretation of the moment or conflicting styles of of doing business. Mm. And we all have these in our lives. I tend to be quite honest and I'm quite dry. I don't Mm. sugarcoat things. I know conflict and that conflict is just as common. In fact, if I was to look back, it's probably more common with the women that I've worked with professionally 
than it has been, you know, a male female thing. So, you know, I just, I didn't see it that much. And I feel like we're all being encouraged to see it and diagnose it everywhere. I don't want to take away from when it absolutely does happen and does exist. But I think, you know, the the spectrum or the, the net that we cast now is a little too wide. And I think there's a risk in undermining women's confidence in assuming that the, the odds are stacked against them. When actually, I think mm-hmm. in the vast majority of cases, they're not. Um, and I don't think it helps women to believe that they're going to go into, you know, very aggressive, you know, workplaces where, you know, they're going to be made to feel that they don't belong. I think in the vast majority of cases, that is just not not true. It's right that we should be asking more of these questions and understanding that potentially the negative byproducts of this narrative that says we're victims because the most successful women I know are not victims, don't perceive themselves to be victims and, mm-hmm. you know, demonstrate through doing and through force of personality and like to the question that you ask, kind of not apologizing for themselves, just being themselves and worrying slightly less about what other people think. You know, as women grow and, and age, they get much more confident in just saying, no, take it or leave it. This is who I am. And I definitely felt that sort of growing superpower of not giving a mm. shit. <laughs> I love that. I, I 100% agree with you. It's like when, when I'm asked this question as a female entrepreneur, you know, uh, I usually say I, I never thought about that. I never kind of classified myself as a as a a woman worker or a woman entrepreneur, a woman whatever with this qualifier, right? And I think that really benefits people who, who don't think like that. I think though there's another element to it, which is the, the unconscious bias, which is something that I, every now and then I notice that and I kind of decided to call out to say, hey, maybe there is an unconscious bias going on here. There's some studies that show that even in a pitch situation for, you know, you're pitching your business to, to investors, sometimes some investors might ask questions to women, which are more like uh, preventive questions, like how can you prevent your company not to succeed, right? So it's kind of more of an anti-risk thing. And for uh, men, sometimes they ask questions that are promoting questions that is like, what's going to be, you know, how are you going to conquer the world? And I think, again, understanding those nuances, as you're saying, can help us as well to flip the question when that happens. Say, well, I'm not going to talk about risk prevention. I'm going to talk about where I'm going as my vision, right? And instead of assuming that, you know, it's just what it is and, and I'm a victim because this happens to me. So there are so many layers of this, right, of, of the levels of awareness both women and men has to, has to have, but also how do we react to that? And I don't know if, you, if that's something that it's part of your questioning at the moment. Yeah, I mean, unconscious bias is a really interesting concept because it's, it is incredibly subjective and hard to know when it's bias or how far it is down to the individual. And there's certainly been a lot of debunking of unconscious bias training because you can never replicate the same results twice. And in some ways, apparently, if you force people to look at that, it can actually exacerbate and make matters worse rather than actually helping. So it can be counterproductive as a, as a technique uh, from what I've heard. The question of stereotypes is one that really interests me. Because in order to understand stereotyping, we kind of need to 
look at you know whether there are any differences between men and women and the accepted convention is there is absolutely not you know women are just as capable as men of doing any career any profession of demonstrating aptitudes in different fields uh, and what have you and I agree with that on an individual basis absolutely but I, I have tapped more and more into the research around bell curves of aptitude which again is not a fashionable thing for us to be discussing but it exists in the same way as in which there are bell curves of sort of physical attributes between men and women that are related to testosterone height body strength you know we also do see um you know greater predilection in women towards agreeableness towards people and relationship building the care professions, teaching, you know, those elements, people-based interests as opposed to interests around things and analytics. And and that is never to say that there aren't women that are just as good, if not better, at all of the things that are deemed more male and men that are just as good, if not better, um, at the things that are considered uh, more female. But those bell curves do exist and the averages are slightly different across them. So I've always found it confusing that, you know, the narrative says we're exactly the same. You know, there's a contradiction in terms Mm -hmm. there. We are more empathetic. We make better leaders, you know, for the reasons of, you know, these slightly more feminine traits. So either we're no different or we're not. You know, I've always found a bit of a, a contradiction in terms there. And if people accept that women have the more positive traits in, you know, have greater resources of the positive traits, then why... Are we not also able to accept that those same traits may skew the averages in different types of professions and fields? Back to the anecdotal, you know, I observed this on graduation. You know, Oxford Uni, you've got some of the smartest women in the world, and yet they were choosing professions in much greater numbers to go into media and marketing or family law as opposed to corporate law. You know, there weren't as many that were interested in banking. You know, they were demonstrating those interests at that age. These women, and it's a very elite, privileged group of women, I should add, you know, they're not idiots. They absolutely knew that those professions that they were choosing were lower paid and would not come with the Mm -hmm. same remuneration uh, as, um, as the other fields. You know, so there's something a bit patronizing that says, you know, that those women didn't know the choices that they were making at that time. You know, the argument would go, well, that was because of, um, you know, prejudice and not wanting to go into male dominated industries. And I, I, I definitely think there's an element of that. But I think there's a lot more going on there besides that it should be okay for us to have the discussion about. And I also noticed this, by the way, in the startup industry. So I've done a lot of judging of female business awards. And the businesses that I've come across that women run seem to be more aligned to their passions, more aligned to products and Mm. verticals that they're very excited about. And they're more bootstrapped, just as a rule. You know, they they like to build businesses that are revenue-based, it seems, in greater proportion than, you know, the the very high-risk, deep-invested binary path that you take when you go down the VC-backed route. And as a result, more female-led businesses, I suspect, on average, succeed than male-led businesses, but just don't reach these sort of huge heights of valuation and growth and all the sort of sexy superstar metrics that people think about when they think of entrepreneurship, particularly tech entrepreneurship. And and so, again, to the bell curves of averages around predilection towards risk, 
you know, women are is slightly more risk averse than men. And of course, the riskiest thing you can do professionally is a VC backed high, high risk sort of tech startup. You know, the odds there are that, you know, 95% will fail. You know, I, I wonder whether I, I don't prefer to see more women having more successful business <laughs> on average and perhaps not scaling and reaching those heights. Because for every Mark Zuckerberg, there's, you know, 99 men that have failed and lost a lot of money and whose marriages have broken down and whose mental health has been you know totally ruined as a result of you know aspiring to that that great height so there's a lot of interesting conversations that I think we should be having around all of this and I think we should explore the averages and obviously average differences become stereotypes but stereotypes can be self-defeating in their own right they should be challenged but, you know, mm. there is a point at which we should use them to ask questions, well, why are they stereotypes? You know, where, where do they come mm. from? What about them can we challenge and should we challenge in order to ensure that there's equality of opportunity for everybody? I think that's what's, yeah. that's what's really important. But the best way to challenge stereotypes is simply to live beyond them and demonstrate through doing that you are not that stereotype. Mm, I love that. Yeah, just take action, uncomfortable actions and move forward. I I want to change a little bit the conversation into kind of this definition of success, right? What is your new definition of success in your new role, in the new, you know, expansion of your portfolio career in your life right now? Oh, I don't know. I'm at a stage in my life where I don't have that vision of where I see myself in five years, let alone two years or, or one year. I feel I personally feel I'm at a bit of a junction where, you know, I could I could go in a number of different directions and I kind of need to pick one in order to succeed within it. Like you, you know, I'm quite a generalist. I have lots of passions and problems that I would love to solve. And I need to decide how far I take ownership of a solution for a particular problem and run with that in order to scale it or how far I support other people solving those problems and will get more satisfaction out of a life that sees me working across multiple problem areas um, and solution areas than over committing within one. And I reserve the right to change my mind and pick one or, you know, (laughs) go back to uh, trying to solve many. You know, I I do believe that you've got to really be in a problem to solve it well. But perhaps the value that I can best offer at the moment is to help accelerate the fortunes of those that are doing a great job on um, solving those problems. So what does Mm. success look like? You know, I just want the, the various things that I spend my time on to yield impact. I don't have to be directly attributable to that impact if I know in myself that I have, you know, I was there and, you know, I did help uh, in some way. But success now is a much broader term for me. It's the health, the happiness, the development of resilience in my children and family in, you know, the, the small community that I'm a part of physically in this part of the world. That is as important to me as being known to have been you know a great innovator or a successful you know entrepreneur in x or y yeah i love that did this reflection come through the experimentation that you've 
you've been doing your whole career or it's coming through a deeper reflection that we we have all been through during the pandemic that made us, you know, made the world stop on so many levels that we had to internalize and ask the big questions again and and say, okay, well, what is what is success and where am I going? What really motivates me? Do you think there's an element of the pandemic to to this reflection or or it's a it's a natural progression that you would expect to be living at this point in time? I think it's more a natural progression, although I think the pandemic has helped to crystallize that, you know, in, in, in a way that a once in a lifetime kind of incredibly unique event like this does. COVID has brought home to me, you know, the, the lack of perspective that I think many of us live with. What is important in life? I think, you know, we waste a huge amount of time on microaggressions that are easy to have opinions on you know the the easier the better whether it's you know whether it's Mr Potato Head or Mrs Potato Head or you know something that you can just say well that's wrong and get involved you know that we lose perspective about the really important things I think in life and Covid has helped to crystallize that for many people sadly trauma and tragedy does that is the most effective way of doing it and it's inherent in the human experience and I think everybody's had that brought home to them to a certain extent this this last year and some much more so than others and I would definitely put myself in the others category because I felt very blessed during this last period of having more time at home you know having our health and the health of those that we know we haven't been very directly impacted but I'm acutely aware of those that have and, you know, the, the lack of proportionality in the response in our culture whereby we need quick fixes and solutions and we look at things in incredibly binary ways in order to be seen to be doing something, do something, do something and, you know, protect. And the safetyism is, you know, the word of the day right now. And yet mm. a lot of these short-termist knee-jerk responses to crisis it can create huge unintended negative consequences. I would love to see us having a healthier sense of perspective about a lot of this stuff. And I think COVID has has helped that to a certain extent. To add the nuances, right, that you are master of, which uh, which I know and love it. <laughs> nuance is my word. I'm like, no, nuance, nuance, nuance. You know, that we don't all need to have an opinion on everything. You know, we can just listen, um, learn, <laughs> observe, and just ask yeah. questions you know without saying i think or i believe at the beginning of every statement exactly the world would be a much better place if we were asking questions to each other all the time right you you said that you lead a double life at some point how so are there two justices there there are so i kept my business name for um for work but i i have changed my name when i got married you know, Butcher is the name that, you know, I built my my profile and my personal brand um, inadvertently. <laughs> and really only through, you know, that blipper experience. So I, I, I kept it and uh, I didn't I didn't see the point in muddying the waters. But I do have this, you know, I live in the Hertfordshire countryside and everyone here, you know, very few people in my community here know me by my um, business name. And I really like that. And I feel like when I get on the train into London, or then more commonly when I press enter Zoom, you know, and I had this sort of transition <laughs> to butcher from, you know, my Hertfordshire mum of three name, you know, I feel like she can 
be more assertive, you know, more um, you know, confident about her abilities. And I, I go into a different business beat. I mean, they're really not that different in truth, but I like having that dual identity. I've always quite enjoyed it. So, so it's an alter ego. It's a, it's a uh, Beyonce versus Sasha Fierce type of situation. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit of an avatar. Yeah. I mean, it's, I do find it funny because sometimes like if there was a, a news article or something, which there has been recently, and I'll um, suddenly, suddenly a mum at school will be like, is that you? I had no idea that you did that. And I was like, why? Because you think I'm such an idiot most of the time. I'm always late for school. <laughs> I get things like, well, but why? I'm the mum who's like the least organised. So I always find it really intriguing when people hear, you know, what I do professionally and they, they always act with surprise. Huh? Really? <laughs> you, know, you don't strike me as you know, the most sort of structured, you know, super ambitious kind of um, tech you know, entrepreneur because... You just never seem to know what's going on. I was like, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah. So Jess, what are you mostly curious about at the moment? The big, hairy, gnarly problem that I cannot lay off at the moment is um, unrelated to anything that I've done really professionally to date. I mean, a little bit towards this question of nuance that we, we've touched upon, but I... I see as um, one of my missions right now and the problem that I'm most seeking to solve the, the, this question of polarization and pessimism and binary thinking in culture today. I really want to try and um, align myself with people that share that as a problem and see how far I can't try and harness my business building and tech entrepreneurship skills to try and contribute to bringing us back together. You know, I feel that, mm. you know, we're, society feels more divided than ever right now. And that worries me. It saddens me. Um, and I would love to try and work on products and solutions that can bring back a greater sense of community that's why I've always loved podcasts that you know go into more depth where you can hear the person and even if you don't agree with them you start to understand more and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that haven't agreed with you know some of the the, the questions that I've raised today but I hope that from by listening to me they can hear the intention behind why I ask those questions mm. and you know I'm, I'm fascinated by the rapid adoption of technologies and then the inadvertent negative byproducts of some of those about what the attention economy is doing to us as far as triggering outrage so that it can get the clicks, you know, which means people are forced yeah. to take positions that are perhaps more extreme than they, they actually believe in order to generate the eyeballs and get the clicks. So I just have so many questions around technology and platforms and I'm, I'm just really, really keen and I'm you know, literally pillaging my network at the moment for anybody that feels these same concerns and that I can work with to create solutions. And it, you know, it's very macro and opaque at the moment. I don't know what these solutions could look like, but that's, that's really my motivator at the moment. And I'm, I'm doing so much reading and learning and listening and um, really enjoying being a student in a lot of this stuff for now. 
Was there something that you would uh, want to share with uh, with our listeners that you have read recently that they should definitely get into that? A book or maybe a podcast episode or something that could help them to see if they, they should be joining your movement? Oh, so interesting. I obviously need to do my own podcast on some of this. So I've written um, I've written a couple of articles that are touching on these at jessbutcher.substack.com. So I'm trying to do a weekly sort of question stroke provocation uh, piece. Some are more um, lighthearted than others. I mean, I've only written two so far. Um, in terms of books, um, there is one that I talk about frequently because it's had a huge impact on my thinking in these areas for the last years, last year or two. And it's called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. For British uh, listeners, it's just as relevant. It's more about sort of Western society. And that is really fascinating exploration of a lot of the trends that have come together to create this culture of sort of binary outrage and you know disappointment with each other uh, that we feel and, and about how our resilience has been undermined as a society. So I'd highly recommend that. And other than that, I, you know, I follow a lot of interesting thinkers who I don't always agree with, but I like the way they ask the questions. I really enjoy the trigonometry podcast, the, the caliber of thinkers that they get on there. Uh, another great book, The Power of Bad um, by John Tierney, really impacted me. It talks about our need to catastrophize everything and to focus on the negative, you know, how much more powerful the negative is than the, than the positive mm -hmm. and our tendency towards that way of thinking. So that's just a selection of, you know, some of the, yeah. the things that I found, you know, very uh, affecting of late. Um, mostly I just want to have conversations with people and, and see perhaps I'm overstating the problem because I spend too much time on Twitter. You know, I am very conscious of that <laughs> for example, as well. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting to be told, you know, there isn't as much to worry about as I think there is, but then also, you know, think about constructive, positive ways in which we can drive great conversations. I think there is. And I think that's a brilliant note to end on. And I would, I would, continue to speak to you literally like for the next couple of hours because you know there's so much to unpick on everything that you said so many pearls of wisdom and I, I want to be part of this movement because I think the challenge on polarization the impact that can have in the world can be massive so I, I, I love that thank you for sharing all of this and thank you for being here today with us I'm sure that uh, everyone who's listening to us really enjoyed this conversation and they will find you on all the links that are going to be on the show notes so great no I've loved it Vita thank you so much thank you so much for listening so far make sure that you listen to other episodes you can go to hypercurious.fm and if you want to stay in touch I'm around I'm on LinkedIn I'm on Twitter I'm on Instagram you just search for my name and you're going to find me if you love this conversation and more, make sure that you also do a five star and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if that's your preferred podcast app. It will mean the world to me. For now, ciao, ciao.